In October of 2012, Ryan Poston, an attorney from Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, was shot to death by his girlfriend, Shana Hubers. After a sensational trial in the Campbell County, Kentucky Circuit Court, Hubers was convicted of murder on April 23, 2015. She was given 40 years in the Kentucky Department of Corrections. Then, in August of 2016, her conviction was overturned on appeal when one of the jurors in the murder trial was revealed to be a convicted felon. Hubers was then convicted of murder during her second trial on murder charges for killing Ryan Poston just last week. Today's podcast will feature Campbell County Commonwealth Attorney Michelle Snodgrass and Ryan's dad, Jay. This is Mark Collier, and this is Fort Thomas Matters Radio, sponsored by Omega Processing Solutions. So we're live now in the Living Media Conference Room. I am with Jay Poston and Michelle Snodgrass. Guys, thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you. So Jay, um, I, I just want to start with you. I know that this has been a, a, an emotionally draining process um, for years for you. Um, came to a close last week. Um, when you heard the verdict come from the jury, they weren't deliberating very, very long. Uh, just take me through your, your process. What, what were, what did you initially think? Well, I think what you have to do is kind of go back maybe a year or two ago when I got the phone call from Michelle that there was going to be a second trial. And from that point on, my attitude was, this is good because I was not comfortable with the first verdict of 40 years. So I looked at it as this is a second bite at the apple and we're gonna get a bigger bite at the apple this time. I thought that my son deserved a life sentence for this woman that murdered him. I thought that that would send a clear message to the future parole board that they would take it more seriously than a 40 year verdict. So when we were in that courtroom for the second sentence or the second verdict, it was just a tremendous feeling of vindication for my child that he deserved the murder verdict. And then we had to go through the next day, the sentencing. So two days that people, until you were there, you can't even begin to imagine how traumatic, how stressful this is. So the second day, the jury was out a little bit longer. And uh, with every minute of drought, you're kind of going, oh my Lord, did they, did they get it right? And they got it right. So sitting there in that courtroom, it was just my feeling of this is finally Ryan's vindication, that my son can finally rest in peace. It was worth it. It was worth all of the trouble, all the headache. And there was only one reason that we felt so confident with all of this is because of Michelle Snodgrass. So, and I, I bet there's, there's a comfort level there too. Michelle prosecuted the, the first trial. You guys fully knew her capabilities. Um, talk about, you know, having that sort of rock there for you. Um, I, take, take me through the, that, that call, when, that first call when she calls you back um, and, and says, we're going to have to take this to trial again. My first thought was, how could this happen? You know, how did this happen? And uh, my second thought was, again, it was, we're going to be okay. Because I felt strongly that there was a reason for this. Almost that Ryan came down from heaven and touched this. I believed that strongly. And the fact that having Michelle behind us is everything. I mean, the first time I met Michelle, the first meeting we had right after the, the murder, we went down and met with her. And the first question I asked Michelle was not, 
what's your political affiliation? Because it has no bearing whatsoever in that courtroom. My first question to her was, what's your experience with a murder trial? And she gave me the answer that she'd been doing this for 18 years and started out nine years in the office as a assistant prosecutor, then prosecutor for nine years. But just her demeanor in that first meeting, Peter and I, Peter Carter, Ryan's other father, and I walked out of that meeting just confident in her abilities that we were going to get justice, that she would see to us getting justice. That it was not only, it just wasn't just another case to her. This was personal to her. This was important. And it meant the whole world to us. For six years, she's been our beacon. I have never once questioned her in six years, ever. So, Michelle, I, I saw you uh, sort of um, nodding in agreement when, when Jay was talking about that, you know, taking that, having to take that second bite of the apple um, and, and knowing that there was a reason for it. Um, when you hear that news, we've got to take this thing to retrial, knowing how much time, effort um, of your life that you've, you give uh, to, these, to these cases. Uh, take me through your thoughts. Where, where are you mentally when you hear that? Well, my first thought is always to Ryan's family. Um, I don't think anybody truly knows how difficult it is for a family to go through the courtroom process. It's hard enough when you have somebody in your family who's a victim of crime, but then to have to spend weeks in a courtroom um, and to really have no control over what happens, that's really difficult for families. So my first thought was about them, but then at the same time, all of us got together and we said exactly what Jay said. There's a reason. Everything happens for a reason. And not once did we think that the reason was so that Shana Hubers could get a lesser sentence. That just didn't enter our mind. So from that point forward, from the time I told them, we vowed that we would work to get a life sentence. That was the only goal that was in our mind from that point on. And that's what we've been doing for the last few years. So you, you hear uh, guilty, you hear life. Um, then how do you transition from all of this time, this effort? I mean, then is, what's, what goes through your mind then? Well, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me, um, you know, how did, how did the defendant react? And um, my, my answer is I have no idea because my um, only thought was of, Jay's, was of Jay and Lisa and Peter, Ryan's family and friends that had been sitting there and who have been by our side every day. They're the ones that I was focused on. Um, so where do we go from here? You know, we hope that we can keep the message of Ryan alive. We hope that we can um, let people know that this does happen in our community. Um, you know, make a difference somehow. Let them know what it's like to go through this process. You know, and um, clearly I'm connected to the family. I mean, we've been together and been through this for six years. You know, I, 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 we've literally grown up together through um, some of the worst times ever. So, so, so Jay, where... where... What, what happens next? Uh, we have a sentencing um, that, that we know will come down in, in October. Correct. Um, so take me through where you are mentally um, and, and how this has, has affected you. Well, it's impacted every facet of my life. I mean, just every single facet. And I've been living this for six years. For six years, my whole focus in my world has been justice for my son. Justice is so important to us that Lisa and Peter and I put it on our son's gravestone, that word. And uh, 
That has been my, so now that it's, we're close, we're not there yet, but we will be. And I've got to kind of look at that. I've got to kind of sit back and, and think of what, because I haven't, I have not looked past this trial. This has been it. There was, as far as I was concerned, there was no life, no time, no anything after this trial. So now I got to take a step back, kind of maybe take a ton, time off, maybe go down to Florida for a month or so and just think about it. And uh, I'm in no rush to do anything. My whole life has been kind of easygoing. And uh, so, but Ryan, my life was always about Ryan. When I looked into the future before there's, I look at my life now as two, two different stages, before Ryan's murder and after Ryan's murder. Before Ryan's murder, my whole focus was Ryan's future, his children, my grandchildren, you know, his job, what he was going to do with his life, how he's going to live out his dreams. That was my focus. He's my only child. And so that's gone. So now I've got to really reconfigure my whole life. I, in the blink of an eye, that day when I got the news, in the blink of an eye, everything I knew in my world was gone. My, my future, my everything was gone. Everything I knew in life, everything I planned in my life was completely destroyed. So it's daunting. I haven't gotten there yet. I'm not even close. And uh, just one step at a time. That's all I can answer. Unfortunately, Mark, what I have found from doing this for as many years as I have is that um, when you lose somebody to a victim to a violent crime, when your family somehow has become victimized by somebody else's criminal actions, you really cannot think much into the future. You sort of take it day by day. Um, sometimes you take it hour by hour um, and find a way and find a purpose in, in what you do from that point forward. And I think that's one of the reasons why I, I understood um, Jay especially. You know, I only have one child. And if anything were to happen to my son, you, you don't know what you would do. You don't know how you get up out of bed every day. So there really is this this very difficult point after things are done in the court. So you have to find a way to keep his memory alive, the message alive. Um, and I think Jay has an amazing story to tell about his son. He said he will never really quite know the potential that Ryan would have had or the people that he could have impacted. And I said to him just the other day, look at all the people that are talking about it. He has put a face onto the real impact of violent crime in our community. And I think that is an amazing accomplishment so that people know, they understand, and they can see things a little bit differently. And we're going to try everything that we can to keep his memory alive. And I know I've heard you say this, Michelle, and, and it's clear the, the bond that you have uh, with the Postons and the Carters. And and so um, you know, you've got to look at how this impacts Yes, of course, in this case, but, but the community as a whole. And, and so um, talk about that a little bit more. I mean, well, this isn't just a crime that affected um, families here, you know, Ryan's family. It affected people everywhere. Um, you know, I think about our jurors, the people that served on this jury. So many of us want to live in a world where you don't think this type of crime happens, but it does right here in our community. No one is immune from it. And so it does have an impact. And um, I think it's important for, for people to know that they won't be alone. That's what I wanted the Postons and the Carters to know is that they weren't going to be alone. We were going to be with them every step of the way. Um, no one is immune from this type of a tragedy. I hope to goodness it doesn't happen um, you know, too often 
but when it does, to know that we are there and we are beside them. Just the other day, I was at the um, Alexandria Fair Parade, and people I didn't know stopped me and thanked me, not just for what I did for Ryan's family, um, but for the community as a whole. And those are the types of moments that after we've been working on this and working seven days a week and um, sometimes 15, 16 hours a day, that's why you realize this is why we are doing what we're doing. Jay, this is a situation that that almost nobody goes through. Thank God. That, um, you know, but you unfortunately do have this experience. Does it feel surreal? I mean, does it does it feel like real life? No, not even close. Everything is surreal. Uh, yesterday I was in a department store and the woman behind the uh, counter recognized me and came, started crying, came out from behind the counter to give me a hug. I've had people, like strangers in bars, lounges, come up to me, guys, they can I give you a hug? And uh, the outpouring has been phenomenal. And what Mark, I, what I tell people is everyone should be touched by the criminal justice system as a victim because they'd be outraged. They'd be outraged at the laws. They'd be outraged at these criminal defense attorneys. They'd be outraged at all of it. And you just, you take a step back and you just, you look at people and you think like with these these criminal defense attorneys, you just go, oh my God, I can't believe they just said that. And all of it is surreal. All of the fact that, you know, that these national TV shows are doing what they're doing. The fact that I go on dailymail.com, a website that goes around the world, and there's this huge article on my son. And, and I would love for him to be in there for a million other reasons than this. But, but it is there. And I like my anonymity. <laughs> I, I, I like being in the back in the shadows a little bit. I do not like being the focus. I've lived my entire life like that. And this has pushed me into the forefront and I don't like being there. But for my son, I'm gonna do what I have to do. I'm gonna have I'm gonna do what I have to do to make sure that no one else anywhere in this county, when they walk in that courtroom being the victims of a crime, have their loved ones being a victim of a crime, they deserve to have a Michelle Snodgrass in there representing them. When I stop and think if we didn't have Michelle if we didn't have Kyle Burns and Cheryl Heater, if we didn't have a Bill Birkenhauer out at Highland Heights Police Chief, all of that, if, they, if we didn't have that, those people, that would be a huge disservice to them because they deserve to have someone in there who's going to fight for them passionately every day like Michelle did, somebody that you're going to have confidence in. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. So it's very, very important to me that Michelle stays where she is because this is what our community deserves. What people, everyone should go and sit in that courtroom because very few people ever see the inside of that courtroom, but they should because they realize the impact it has on every citizen of Campbell County. It makes their community a safer place, what Michelle does. It makes their loved ones safer. But it, what she does impacts every single member of this community. Well, <clears throat> and I told you guys this, I, you know, I am a, in terms of media coverage, I was going to always get pushed out. I mean, there was, there was the big guys that, that don't know who I am, don't care, and, and they want to get their story. And you sort of talked about that, Jay. And so I'll ask you, Michelle, are, what are the things that you were surprised that some of the drop-in media focused on on this trial that you, that you looked at and you thought, how is that a thing? Well, you know, one of the things that has been covered extensively, um, and, and I didn't watch any of the media coverage while the trial was going on. Number one, I was working. So I didn't, I would work until, you know, the early morning hours. So I didn't even have a chance. 
but people have told me this whole idea about um, Ryan having a date with Miss Ohio, which he did, but they have sort of taken that and run with it. And, you know, for us, it's only a small part of the narrative. There is so much more that happened. You know, what I looked at this case and I kept saying is, who is the real victim? And I understand defense attorneys tried to make the victim of crime to be the one that's the aggressor. But Shana Hubers was never the victim in this case. It was always Ryan Poston. He did everything that anyone who's a victim of stalking and harassment and a, an obsessive ex would do. He talked to his friends about potentially getting a restraining order. Um, his family was trying to get him to change the locks on his condo. He even asked his secretary one time, what do you think about if it's a guy that has to get one of these restraining orders? And, you know, and there's a stigma against it. So we need to make sure that everybody knows that he is the only victim in this case. Not only on that night, but other nights. Testimony came out in this trial that Shana Hubers had hit him multiple times. Um, that on that night, she had hit him before she shot him. Um, she had ripped his shirt. He was the only one in that condominium that had any evidence of a physical attack on him. Ryan Poston was the only one. So that surprises me a little bit that they focus on just a small portion of the narrative. And, and Jay, I, I think probably too, you know, me and we've never met before today, but, but the Postons are, are from Fort Thomas and from Northern Kentucky. And, and so part of me thinks, you know, how would I want to be treated in, in this capacity? Um, you know, as a media member, that's that's one of the things that when we're hyper local and that's who we're talking about, we're covering our neighbors. And in an awful situation like this, I mean, we we could go down that route too. We could be in that courtroom and, and cover the things that um, you know some of the bigger guys can drop into to our area and and get a million clicks and and call it a day. But I look at this and I'm sitting across from you, knowing. I don't want to do that. Um, what are what are some of the things that 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 bothered you? Well, many. First off, the the national press, who I would not speak to and will not speak to, uh, it was all about the salacious. They didn't care about my son. They didn't care for one second about my son. They cared about ratings. But after the first trial, I did go to the Cincinnati Enquirer. They asked me for an interview, and I gave them an interview because. I wanted them to know who Ryan Poston, the, the son, the brother, the friend is, not Ryan Poston, the murder victim. I wanted people here to know that he was a tremendous young son, a tremendous young man, that in the 30 years he was on this earth, he never raised his voice or lost his temper ever to me, his mother, or any of his friends. You would be hard-pressed to find anybody walking this earth other than a murderer who could tell you that my son had a temper or yelled. It just wasn't in him. But the national press, like, for instance, when I sat down with the Enquirer, I said to them, let me ask you all a question before I start. And they said, okay. I said, who did Jody Arias murder? And they gave me a blank stare because they didn't have a clue because it wasn't important to them. All that was important to them was this murderer, this woman murderer, Jody Arias. And all that was important to the national press and even the local press to a large degree is Shana Huber, Shana Huber. So it's all Shana Huber's. And we sit back and we go, oh, my Lord, that's just, it's wrong. But also, we're a pretty quiet family. We're very private and dignified, hopefully. And so we try to stay away from all of that. We, my attitude was that the, and I told this to the press, I said, I believe that the verdict and the sentence will speak for Ryan. That's what we need. I think the world will see that. 
And uh, so that's been our approach since the beginning. But the national press, again, they don't care about myself. They don't care about Lisa, Peter, his sisters, not a bit. Tell me a little bit more about Ryan. Um, you know, I can, I can see when you talk about him, I'm a dad too. Right. Um, you're obviously very proud of him. I used to watch him walk across the restaurant to meet me, and I would just think, I made that. That's my boy. You know, I would see my son was drop-dead gorgeous. He had his mother's beauty, which he reminded me of constantly. And, uh, and I even made a joke in the courtroom. I think he got my little toe on my left foot. But, I would, but it wasn't his brilliance that people really – they would see at the beginning how beautiful he was. I mean – and they would think, oh, this guy's going to be a jerk or something. And then they would get to meet, know him and see his brilliance. He was unbelievably brilliant, always coming up with ideas for inventions. He took the Ohio bar without studying and passed it. But he had just a kindness to him. And as I testified in court, it's that kindness that really got him killed because he didn't, he didn't want to stand up to her. He didn't want to confront her. And as I tell people, Mark, if this had been – if I'd had a daughter – being treated exactly as he was being treated by a guy, I would have handled it very differently because our society looks at men as the aggressors. But unfortunately, you know, we thought, okay, I've got this six foot three, 200 pound, 29 year old son who's a man. And as a parent, as you know, you, you know, your children are still small, but you get, they get to the point in your life where, you know, you got to step in, you got to step back. And there's that constant, okay, when do I step in? When do I step back? And that's a tough one. Because, but again, if that had been my daughter, I'd have handled it very differently. That guy would have been, not only would I have told him to leave my daughter's condo, I would have thrown him through a window to make sure he left her condo. But since it's your son, you, you handle it differently. And uh, that will forever be with me. But at the time, I did what, I, you know, what was best. And Ryan just, it wasn't in him to be bad. He actually came to my home one night at 1230 at night. And asked if he could sleep in his bedroom. And I looked at him and I said, so why, why do you want to sleep here? I said, of course you can sleep here, but why? And he said, well, Dad, she just won't leave my condo. And I said, Ryan, that's your condo. That's your home. I said, she should leave your home. You don't leave your home. And he had his head down and he just said, Dad, it's just easier this way. And that was Ryan. He was not confrontational. He was just an incredibly kind-hearted individual. And he was adored by people literally all over the world. Hundreds of people came for his funeral from all over the world. I tell people that, you know, we had every, every color of skin, every life-leaning way, every, you know, political philosophy there. Ryan didn't care. He didn't care if you were straight or gay, black or white. He didn't care. He cared that you were a good person. He cared that you could carry on a conversation with him and hold your own. Because he was consumed with knowledge. He, cons he wanted to always educate himself more and more every day. That was Ryan. And that's one of the hard things for us in the courtroom. Because, you know, over the years I've learned about this person who I would have loved to have been friends with. Um, I think that we would have had some amazing discussions. And, um, you know, it just, it's just such a shame that you don't get to know him. But in the courtroom, from the prosecution point of view, you're limited as to how much you can talk about the victim. And that's crazy to us. And I had to explain to them, there's only so many things that we can bring up or the defense is going to be objecting because the case really is, it becomes not so much about Ryan. And that's what the shame is. And uh, we tried as much as we could to bring it back to him. 
for the family's sake, for the jury's sake, because they needed to know. It doesn't need to just be another file or another case because it's not. It, it's a life, and that's what was so important to us. A life with tremendous possibilities, tremendous possibilities. I think it's got to be surreal for you too, Michelle, to, you know, to spend so much time with Ryan's family. It, I bet it feels like you do know him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I can tell memories from Ryan when he was young because you do, you get to know so much about them. That's the only way I can do my job is if I know the person and I feel like I'm as invested in the outcome as Ryan friends and family were. And, um, not just me, but everybody in my office. I mean, honestly, you cannot do this alone. Um, I had a tremendous group. Um, we were a team that did this, you know, the prosecutors, the paralegals, the interns. I had interns working all summer on this who just did an amazing job. And every single one of them was as worried about the outcome and as invested in the outcome as I was. So the nuts and bolts of this particular case is, you know, the defense has got to change it up a little bit. How did you guys change your strategy? Well, you know, we couldn't look at this. I, I, I use, I hope I'm using the golf analogy correctly. This wasn't just a mulligan. You don't just do it over again and hope for a different outcome. We had to change everything that we did because the one thing that you do not want is for the defense to have your entire strategy as well, which that was all recorded from the first trial. They had a copy of it. So we had to change things. We revisited every single witness to find out if there was a different way we could approach it. Um, we knew that they were going to go a little bit of a hybrid defense this time. It was a combination of self-defense along with her um, mental condition to try to get a lesser offense because of being under an extreme emotional disturbance. So we looked at everything differently. We asked different questions of witnesses that testified the last time. So for us, we really had to look at it as a brand new start. In fact, I didn't even use any of my um, questioning from the last trial. I redid everything because you have to look at it fresh. Tell me a little bit about, and I know that we just talked about the differences of the trial. Tell me, how, how have you changed from, from 2015 to, to now? Well, you know, um, there were things that happened in the first trial that I wasn't happy with. Um, certainly, you know, things that I had done, questions that we didn't ask, things that we didn't address. Um, and, and I kind of looked at it as a chance to do better for Ryan. That's, that's how we looked at this. Um, you know, I, I'm older, <laughs> many years older than I was the first time. And um, there was a part of me that always questioned the 40 years. And so I, I just took that number out of my mind and said, we, there, there is no, there's no result other than getting the life sentence. So from the beginning, we approached it differently. I think the first time we were hoping for the murder conviction this time we were hoping for the sentence. So that's how we looked at it differently. And, um, you know, I thought a lot about what we did the last time, all of us, and we knew that we had to be better for them. And I hope we were. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if I want Jay to answer that or not. But, um, you know, it, it, and I was, and, and I grew much closer to the family and Ryan's friends. I can't tell you how many places I go where I meet people who knew him. And I love hearing the stories about him. And so because I had more years with that, I became much more invested 
Jay, I was going to ask you sort of the same question. Um, you know, how have you changed from from the first trial personally, uh, if at all, from from 2015 to today? Well, I think you know, in the first trial, everything was just new. Everything was a question mark. We didn't, you know, we had never been in that situation, so we didn't quite understand the laws, the process, all of it, and that was a learning experience for us. Uh, but watching Michelle in that first trial, she was fabulous <laughs> and she's hard on herself like any anybody who's very good at their job she's hard on herself because she wants the most out of what she does every day in this so with the second trial there was um just this feeling this strong feeling in all of us that we were going to be okay a we had michelle and and kyle burns and Cheryl heater in there who are tremendous prosecutors but also we felt strongly that this was this came from ryan we felt and still feel strongly that this came from Ryan. I could tell you stories how he has spoken to us that would just give you goosebumps. And um, so it's it's stressful. It's tension beyond belief. It's hard. But in every one of our souls, deeply, we thought that this was going to be the outcome. I do want to come back to that because I do want to hear a story because I, I do want this to be about you guys and I want this to, to serve to Ryan's legacy a little bit too. So I want to come back to that. Okay. Um, so tell me a little bit. So Jay, I'm I'm looking at you, um, and I, I just cannot believe the the tragedy that that you have been through, and in, in the way that you're carrying yourself right now. And, and um, not to bring up another tragedy, but it, it really reminds me a lot of speaking with Keith Chalk, who lost his daughter Michelle. Um, we did a similar podcast to this, and it was almost out about out of body for me as well, because I'm sitting here talking to a father that has lost one, and I can't believe how composed uh, he was, and you are. How, how how do you how do you make that happen? You know what I tell people because I don't have an answer for that, a, a real clear answer, other than the fact that you just do it. And my attitude has been the spirit of my son is within me. The other day, Michelle and I were doing a radio show, and I, I don't do this. You know, this. I'm just some guy that this has fallen along to, and, and I, I'm, I've always, like I said earlier, stayed in the shadows. So we're about to go on the radio in front of millions of people going to hear us. And about 30 seconds before we went on, I had a huge panic attack to the point where I literally came within an eyelash of getting up and leaving the studio. And I just put my head down, and I said, Ryan, I need a little help here. And as soon as that mic was live, I was fine. And I don't know if there's any explanation for it other than the fact that I am a representative of my son and how I comport myself on that witness stand in front of the press, in that courtroom, outside that courthouse, speaks to who Ryan was. When people see me, hopefully behaving in a dignified way, they realize that Ryan was raised by a good guy, you know, a good father. And Peter Carter, the same thing, and his mother. Good people, dignified, handle things beautifully. And they look at that and they see a son that, you know, that a man that was raised by good people. So I'm always thinking of what this, what image am I portraying for my son? And, and also, Mark, I tell the story, like, I have a little dog, Morky, Oliver. He weighs 10 pounds. It was my son's dog. It's the only dog I've ever had. And, um, but Lisa and I, his mother would babysit the Oliver while Ryan was at work. And I tell people, this is my son's dog. He went out and bought a 10-pound Morky named Oliver. Instead of buying a Rottweiler or a Doberman, he didn't, you know, he didn't have to look like some big tough guy. He didn't have any desire to look like a big tough guy. He had that little dog that he absolutely adored. 
And that's the sun we, we raise. We are extremely proud of that. But how I conduct myself speaks to who my son was. So that's very important to me. And I hopefully I, hopefully I, I do okay with that. So, Michelle, I know Jay couldn't be in the courtroom because he was a witness for a, for a lot of this during the first and the second trial. Um, and he sort of made mention to the fact that you know, they were all new to this uh, first time around. You're, you're an expert. You see this kind of thing on a day that's your job. Um, talk about the transition that you saw in the, in the Poston and Carter families um, from, from the first to the second. Well, with the first trial, of course, I spent a lot of time getting them ready for it. I told them what the rules would be. I told them how there wouldn't be evidence that we wanted to get in that wouldn't be allowed. I told them that they would say horrible things about their um, their loved one, Ryan. And I don't know if they really believed me until they sat through it. And it was tough. It's tough on all of them. Um, and it's hard for them to understand why a subpoenaed witness is not allowed to sit in the trial. And I'm not allowed to tell Jay every day what happened in that courtroom because there are rules that prevent that. But for the second trial, they knew going in what was going to happen. They were prepared for rulings that would go in our favor and rulings that wouldn't go in our favor. They were prepared for the fact that the defense had to say horrible things about their loved one. I think they went in just a little bit stronger. It certainly doesn't make it easier. And anybody who was in that courtroom and saw Peter's family and um, saw and heard Jay testify at the sentencing and heard Ryan's sister, Katie Carter, testify at that sentencing, knows that there is nothing that makes it easier. But what it did was it made them prepared. And I think when you're prepared and when you go into something, it just gives you a little bit more strength. And I think that's what they had. They sat there every day for the three-week trial. Every day they were there. Um, Jay wanted to come back in, but we had these discussions what if something comes up when the defense is presenting their case that I need you for? So he sets aside his own interest in wanting to be in the courtroom and says, no, I'll stay out. If you need me, I'm here. And, and that's what all of the family said. If you need us, we won't be in that courtroom, even though we want to, to represent Ryan. So uh, that, was, that was really great that we had that support um, from the, his family and friends there was not a question. Whatever you needed, we'll do. And here's where Michelle comes in so importantly. I can't be in that courtroom. Yeah, as a father, you want to be there to defend your child. You want to be there to back up your kid. You know, that's, that's, that's what we do for our children. But in that courtroom, I cannot. But Michelle is his voice in that courtroom. And she defends his good name and his honor in that courtroom. And that confidence that I have in her, that Lisa and Peter have in her, it just means the world to have that. If you didn't have the confidence in the prosecutor, that ordeal for three weeks, the first trial and the second trial, would have been an absolute horrendous nightmare. To have that is incalculable. You just, it's so valuable. But, um, but, you, but even as prepared as you might be for the second one, there are still situations like where I was outside in the foyer by myself and Ryan's sister, Libby, his youngest sister, came crashing through the doors, running and crying her eyes out and just right into my arms. And, I turned to her, her sister, Allison, was with her, too, and I said, what's going on? What happened in there? And, and that's when Shana Huber said that the, uh, Ryan's family is so rich they can just buy another child. And little Libby heard that about her big brother and just, just came out just crying her eyes out. You just can't prepare your stuff for things like this, and uh, it's, it's, it's brutal. So 
But we were prepared more for the second one, but you will never, ever be ready for what's thrown at you. Well, it's difficult for them to sit there and to see, you know, we, we tried to look at the family before we would show pictures from the crime scene because obviously they don't want to look, but they don't want to leave because they want to be there to support Ryan. So we would try to always turn and give them a glance and let them know, you know, close your eyes or put your head down. Um, they have to hear things. And, and I remember before the medical examiner testified saying to Ryan's mother, this is going to be very matter of fact. I mean, he's a doctor. He's here for a specific purpose. Please do not take his bluntness as being anything other than, than that. You know, he's, he's here as a fact witness to just testify about the facts. But when that's your child that they're talking about, boy, that's tough to hear. Um, nobody wants to sit there and, and, and listen to it, you know, so that it becomes all about trajectory and, and the um, angle of impact. And then the damage that was done internally to his body, nobody wants to listen to that. Um, so you think about their commitment and, and sitting there and putting themselves through it. It's, it's really, it, it's unlike anything most people know. And, and I hope to goodness people don't ever have to experience it. At one point, Mark, in that second trial, I made a mistake of glancing up and there was a picture of Ryan, my son, in a body bag, bloodied. And that, I saw it for a split second, but it'll be with me for the rest of my life. I will never get that picture out of my head. So those things just will forever tear us to pieces. So, Michelle, you were there every day throughout the course of the trial. And I know it's sort of hard to remove yourself as somebody that is observing this as well because you're working. Mm -hmm. And you're in the moment and, and it's sort of hard to just sit back. And somebody that wasn't in the trial, a media member or just a member of the community like me, how would you describe the feeling uh, in that courtroom in terms of jury, in terms of just sights, sounds? How would you describe it? Mm -hmm. um, well, it's, it's difficult. I would say that. Um, you know, crime scene photos are hard to see. I think for our jurors, that was difficult for them to see. I think it was difficult for our jurors to even hear the testimony of witnesses. Um, we had a number of witnesses who had been incarcerated with Shana Hubers who came forward to say, you need to know what this girl said. Um, she showed no remorse. Um, to see the family as they listened to the testimony, the tension level, I would think, from an outsider was probably um, pretty high. I know it was for all of us, but for somebody that didn't even know what was going on, um, to, to be exposed to this, to see how it went on day after day after day, um, that's how I think they would probably explain it, tense, because there was not, you know, there's not, um, you know, periods where things lighten up. There's not periods of time where people crack a joke, even though it's in your instinct to want to do that, to kind of bring, bring a different emotion to it. It was tough. It was tough. And I think our jurors, I remember um, looking at our jurors multiple times during pivotal moments in the trial. And just thinking, for people who aren't exposed to what I'm exposed to every day, this has got to be devastating for them to see it. And they, they return a verdict really quickly. Um, what, what did you do between when they adjourn and then when, when you come back? 
Well, that's a, it's a tough time. So we have a room in the courthouse where we waited. It's where our grand jury meets. And um, the Poston and the Carter families were there. Um, you know, I had some of my family members there, people from the office. And really that anxiety at that period of time, everything that we have been working for, it, it's at its highest. It's peaks right then. Um, you know, I tried to keep myself from getting sick. Um, I tried to you know, lay down. Um, there is just not, there's not a way to deal with it. I know you said it came back quick. And I know looking back after a three week trial, a five hour verdict is fast, but for us, it felt like an eternity. Um, it, it literally each minute that ticks by you question, what did I say wrong? Did I not explain it enough? Did I not deal with the appropriate issues in my closing? Um, you know, and then you realize, well, wait a minute, it's dinner time. They're probably ordering food. I think they get frishes brought in. Um, so they're eating. They're going through these jury instructions. But that, for me, is the worst point, waiting. You know, what, waiting. I, at that, what I was thinking of at that point was looking at Michelle, and I have no choice but to be there. Lisa and Peter, all of us, we have no choice. We're going to be there. That's our son. That's our brother. That's our friend. We're going to be there. And I look at Michelle, and I look at Kyle, and I look at Cheryl, and I said, they don't, I'm thinking they don't have to be here. She could do many other things and make good money practicing law, but she invites us into her life, and because it's not a job to Michelle, it's a calling to Michelle. Then to her, she's not a politician. She's a prosecutor, and she's a public servant. You know, she was raised at the feet of probably the greatest public servant in the history of Campbell County, her father, Jack Snodgrass. So she has seen it firsthand all of her life what it means to be a public servant because, again, she doesn't have to do this. There's a lot of other things she could do, but her passion, I think, dictates to her that she really doesn't have a choice. This is her passion. This is what she was born to do, and uh, thank God she does it. <laughs> we, she is a member of the family. She will always be a member. My sisters absolutely adore her. As a matter of fact, I think I'm out and she's in. <laughs> <laughs> Going to be sitting at that uh, Thanksgiving dinner table, right? <laughs> you got a seat. I want to go back, Jen, and sort of end it on this. You, you talked about uh, Ryan speaking to you, um, you know, in different ways that, that would give you goosebumps. Give, give me a story. Okay. Uh, after the first, at the beginning of the first trial, I was sitting at my home at my desk, and I was pretty anxious, pretty anxious, pretty nervous. It's late at night, and I pushed back from my desk, and, and I looked up at, to the heavens, and I said, Ryan, I need some help. I really need to know you're with me. I said, if you're with me and I can't sense it and I'm frustrating you, I'm sorry. I said, but I really could use some help here. And on my desk, Mark, is an antique serving tray. And on that antique serving tray is the inner workings of a 1930-something clock, about 10 inches tall. And it was a gift given to me by Ryan for my birthday about four or five years previous. Sat on my desk for five years, never made a tick or a talk, nothing. I took it to my Charlie Cleaves, my watch guy and Charlie said, Jay, it's broken. You know, you don't have a winder for it. And he said, you know, so I said, okay. So I pushed back. I asked Ryan for some, I said, I really need some help here. And right at that second, that clock started moving. All the wheels on it started moving. All these little hands started going up and down on it. It was bizarre. And I started laughing and I looked up and I said, I hear you. You're with me. I, you're with me. You said it out loud. I said it out loud. I said, you're with me. And for 25 minutes, that clock didn't stop moving. And to this day, it's never made another tick or a talk. But from that moment forward, I was pretty calm from that first trial because I knew my son was with me. And uh, again, it was, it was the clock that, that he gave me. And there was another instance in the courtroom early on in the first trial when Will Zevley was her attorney. And he's a special kind of disturbed human being, Will Zevley. 
and uh, and he was denigrating my son in court and uh, denigrating with lies. And there was a seal of justice that hangs over the judge's chair about eight feet up on the wall. And that seal of justice came crashing to the ground. And the whole courtroom just gasped. And I asked Michelle, I said, have you ever seen that before? And she said, no. I believe strongly that my son in some way pushed that. It wasn't just a picture. It wasn't a camera. It was a seal of justice of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. He where, pushed off the wall. Where is it? So it's on the wall. It's behind fixed. the judge, about eight feet up behind his head. So, it, it, you know, I always thought when I walked into the courtroom, especially on this case, I had heard stories about how much Ryan loved the law and how he truly wanted to be um, there for people who couldn't represent themselves. And I thought that was so ironic because I've always said, I'm the voice of those that cannot speak anymore. That's kind of how I look at what I do. I need to be their voice in the courtroom. And I don't even remember what the hearing was about. I just remember we weren't really happy with how things were going or what what was what was happening in the courtroom. And I remember thinking he would just be devastated by what was going on in court. And without any notice, this seal of justice fell to the ground. And I think we all just kind of looked around and thought, Yep, that was him. All of my that family members looked at each other and went, Ryan, he's talking to us. Ryan had a very strong personality. He was a very strong individual. And, but again, like Michelle, he was an attorney, and he loved the law. His grandfather was a judge and a, an attorney, and he loved his grandfather, had great respect for him. And ever since he was a little boy, he said, I'm going to walk in my grandfather's shoes someday. And his uncle Jim, my brother Jim Poston, who Ryan had great respect for, and was tremendous to Ryan throughout his life. So... And that's not the only story. I mean, if you talk to any of uh, Ryan's family and friends, they will—they all have their own stories. I, I have mine, and, and it was when I was getting ready for my closing argument, this trial. And it was probably about, um, what well, was after midnight. I had just gotten home from the office, and I received a text from Jay. And he said, we have one thing in our side that the defense doesn't. He said, we have our angel Ryan, and if you need help, just say a prayer to him. And so I was up a few more hours, and I knew that there were things I was forgetting. I was exhausted. It was the end of the three weeks. So I did what he told me. I said that little prayer. And three times during the night, I woke up. Like, I, I just felt like somebody was pushing on me, wanting to wake me up. And I remembered three very important things that I had to do at each time. You know, it's, it's, it's just the, those types of things that happen that you don't really have an explanation for sliver of clarity you get up in the middle of the night go write it down and and then it gets entered into your your closing absolutely and they were very important facts that i needed to remember but through the exhaustion and through the hours and the stress i i just wasn't thinking clearly but uh it i, I took his advice and and that helped so october 18th is that right yes um what do you expect what do you hope for? Well, what I hope for is that the jury recommendation is followed. The one thing that we want to make a point of is that these 12 members of our jury listened to every bit of evidence that was presented. They took notes. They were, um, you know, it was a long period of time, and there was not one day where they weren't with us along the way. They heard everything, and I think their decision was very well thought out. So you always hope that, that that's what happens, is that the jury recommendation is followed, because quite frankly, I think they all felt that it was the only appropriate outcome. Um, it was a unanimous decision by them, and uh, I want to give respect 
to them by following this recommendation because it was, um, it, you know, it was important. I think they were as invested. They, they knew. They knew how important this was to everyone in that courtroom. Jack. Which gets us back to the importance yeah. of having Michelle because she had – that case was either won or lost on the selection of that jury. And Michelle knows her people in Campbell County. She picked that jury. and She picked a very good jury. So that's a huge thing where experience is so important to be able to know your people, pick the right people. Because all it took was one person on that jury to get it wrong. And as I tell people about the, um, what we've dealt with here is you realize that they have, the defense has hundreds of apples they can take a bite out of. They can appeal and appeal and appeal. Michelle's got to get it right on the first try. She gets one bite at that apple. If you get it wrong, justice is not served. So that's one of the things that is so frustrating about this all is that you realize that as the, as the, uh, the victim, the system is geared towards the, uh, the criminal. It just is. So Michelle got it right. Jay, I'm going to give you the last word here. Uh, this is never, ever going to not be imprinted on your soul. Um, it, it's very clear that, that uh, you, know, you live for your son. Um, final word. Let, uh, let Ryan speak. My final word would be to all of you listening who have children, hold your child, hold your children close. Be there for him every step of the way as we were for Ryan. Love them because you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. You never know what the next phone call is going to tell you. And I pray to the Lord that no one ever has to deal with what we have dealt with, with the loss of Ryan. So for Jay Poston and Michelle Snodgrass, this is Mark Collier with Four Thomas Matters Radio. And just a reminder, if you want to um, you know, kind of get, a, get some more feedback on this, the final sentencing will be October 18th. That is in uh, the Campbell County Circuit Court Division. Two. Division two. That's pretty close. Yeah. Michelle, Jay, thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you, Mark. Four Thomas Matters Radio is always sponsored by Omega Processing Solutions. Celebrating their 15th year of operation, Omega is a premier provider of electronic payment processing and data delivery. They deliver card processing, business-to-business, -business, and e-commerce payment solutions, mobile pay, POS systems, gift card, and customer loyalty programs. They also have capital funding to thousands of businesses across the United States. Omega Processing Solutions. Reach them today at 866-888-9724. 866-888-9724. Omega Processing Solutions. Unsurpassed value, unmatched support. If you like this podcast, you can download and subscribe to our channel on any iTunes station or platform. Just search Fort Thomas Matters. You can also find us on fortthomasmatters.com where we provide locally sourced news each and every day online and on our social platforms. Just search again Fort Thomas Matters. This is Mark Collier.